Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes techmeister Marshall Brown, and by our artist of the show, artist, writer, teacher Caitlin Berrigan. This episode also includes a salute to scientist explorer Alexander von Humboldt and a tribute to 1930s cartoon character, Betty Boop. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hochsprung and Rick and Henny Newman, and to our supportive snappers, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Dominique Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Alexander von Humboldt, just maybe the greatest explorer of all time. Sometimes a book can be both a spirited adventure story and a scientific opus. Science. Such was my experience with Andrea Wolff's The Invention of Nature, Alexander von Humboldt's New World. Humboldt was a German naturalist, geographer, explorer, and polymath. Huh? What's a polymath? Well, take a Renaissance man, combine him with a jack-of-all-trades, add in a baseball utility player, and you might just almost build an Alexander von Humboldt. If he could play a botanist, biologist, geographer, meteorologist, and geologist, as well as a mean third base. Alexander von Humboldt was quite a guy. He may have been the greatest explorer slash tourist of all time. Humboldt made multiple scientific explorations of the Americas and across Russia between 1799 and 1830, exploring and describing them from a modern scientific point of view. His descriptions of his journeys were published in enormous volumes over his nearly 90 years on the planet. Humboldt resurrected the word cosmos from the ancient Greek and combined natural science with art to unify diverse branches of scientific knowledge and culture. Cosmos also motivated a holistic perception of the universe as one interacting entity. Humboldt was one of the first people to propose that South America and Africa were once joined in an ancient continent, and based on observations generated during his travels, Humboldt was the first person to describe the phenomenon and cause of human-induced climate change in 1800. Wolf tells us Humboldt felt an inexplicable pull towards the unknown, what the Germans call Fernweh, a longing for distant places. He traveled extensively, always taking his instruments to measure everything around him. He met Napoleon, Goethe, Darwin, and Thomas Jefferson, among a score of other greats of his era. Jefferson would later refer to Humboldt as the greatest scientific man of the age. And his secretary of the treasury said of Humboldt, I was delighted and swallowed more information of various kinds in less than two hours than I had for two years past in all I had read or heard. More places are named after Humboldt than anyone else, 
and the state of Nevada was almost called Humboldt when their constitutional convention debated its name in the 1860s. Alexander von Humboldt was probably the most studious and inquisitive tourist ever. At the time of Humboldt's great travels, Germany was not yet a nation and had no empire. So, he did not have the advantages of, say, Captain Cook, who was given the mission to explore the vast unknown areas of the Pacific Ocean for the British Empire. The sun never sets on the British Empire. He was a deeply curious young man who grew up in an aristocratic family in Prussia in the latter third of the 18th century. Childhood studies of plants, shells, and insects led to further study as a geologist and mining engineer in Freiburg. When his mother died in 1796, Humboldt inherited a small fortune, which he put to use to finance a series of explorations across the Americas and later Russia. Humboldt became friends with Germany's great poet Johann Wolfgang von Goethe while a student. His first publication brought him to the attention of Goethe, who was interested in meeting the young scientist to discuss metamorphism of plants. They spent day after day discussing the nexus between nature and art. For both men, it was revelatory. Quote, Goethe had had no scientific sparring partner with whom to develop his theories. All that changed when he met Humboldt, who believed nature must be experienced through feeling, unquote. He would never forget that Goethe encouraged him to combine nature and art, facts, and creativity. Around this time, Humboldt had also connected with naturalists who had been with Captain Cook on his second voyage. He met Sir Joseph Banks, president of the Royal Society, who had also traveled with Cook. Banks showed Humboldt his huge herbarium with specimens of the South Sea tropics. They shared botanical specimens which further inspired the young German. Humboldt yearned for his own expedition. He had stocked a pile of scientific instruments and with his own inheritance to finance his scientific travels, he sought a Spanish ship for a major expedition to South America. By proposing his own financing, he was given a positive response. Why, sure! Humboldt and his French naturalist friend and artist, Aimé Bonplan, made haste to sail in June 1799. What followed was one of the greatest scientific adventures in human history. The ship stopped for six days on the island of Tenerife, where Humboldt climbed the volcano Tede and then sailed on to Cuba. Humboldt was not an ordinary Cuban tourist. He collected plant material and made extensive notes. During this time, he socialized with scientific and landowner friends, conducted mineralogical surveys, and finished his vast collection of the island's flora and fauna. Humboldt collected statistical information on Cuba's population, production, technology, and trade, and made suggestions for enhancing them to the authorities. And that was just his day off. Take a break. Then on to Venezuela where in February 1800, Humboldt and Bonplan began an expedition with the purpose of exploring the course of the Orinoco River to near the Amazon. This trip, which lasted four months and covered 1,725 miles of wild and mostly uninhabited country, had an aim of establishing a link between the water systems of the rivers Orinoco and Amazon. His expedition had the important result of determining the exact position of the divide, 
as well as documenting the life of several native tribes. The greatest nuisance were the mosquitoes. But these men were men of science and would not be put off by buzzing bites and itching. Later in the journey, Humboldt and Bonpland discovered a group of electric eels whose shock could kill a man. To catch them, locals suggested they drive wild horses into the river, which brought the eels out from the river mud and resulted in a violent confrontation of eels and horses. Some of which died. Humboldt and Bonpland were stunned, but captured and dissected some eels, which retained their ability to shock. Both received potentially dangerous electric shocks during their investigations. The encounter made Humboldt think more deeply about electricity and magnetism, typical of his ability to extrapolate from observation to more general principles. How he felt about the deaths of the horses, we never learn. Humboldt and Bonplan crossed the frozen ridges of the Cordillera Real, and they moved into Ecuador, reaching Quito in January 1802. Their stay in Ecuador was marked by the ascent of various Andes mountains, including the massive volcano Chimborazo, thought at the time to be the biggest mountain in the world. This was a world record at the time, as the party reached 19,286 feet without climbing equipment or oxygen. Quote, no one had ever come this high before, and no one had ever breathed such thin air. As he stood at the top of the world, looking down upon the mountain ranges folded beneath him, Humboldt began to see the world differently. Humboldt and his party continued to explore the Andes, the headwaters of the Amazon, and in their downtime, the fertilizing properties of guano, local flora and fauna, and much tribal lore. They continued on to Mexico, where Humboldt set up his instruments, surveying the deep water bay of Acapulco to determine its longitude. When he left Mexico a year later, he took a similar set of measures from the east coast port of Veracruz. He managed to do more for Mexican cartographers in one trip than the Spanish had done in 280 years. In addition to his scientific work, in his writings, Humboldt was coming to various political conclusions. Quote, his writings made several points very clear. Colonialism was disastrous for people and the environment. Colonial society was based on inequality. The indigenous people were neither barbaric nor savages. And the colonists were as capable of scientific discoveries, art, and craftsmanship as the Europeans. In his scathing indictments of colonialism, Humboldt showed how everything was interrelated. Climate, soils, and agriculture with slavery, demographics, and economics. Humboldt continued on to the United States, with whose president Thomas Jefferson he had been carrying on a lively scientific correspondence. After arriving in Washington, D.C., Humboldt held numerous intense discussions with Jefferson on both scientific matters and his long stay in New Spain. Jefferson had only recently concluded the Louisiana Purchase, which now placed New Spain on the southwest border of the United States. Humboldt and Jefferson had discussions on everything from mammoths to southwestern habitats. But for all their agreement, there was one subject on which they differed, slavery. 
For Humboldt, colonialism and slavery were basically one and the same, interwoven with man's relationship to nature and the exploitation of natural resources. Everywhere Humboldt went, he brought his instruments, reams of paper, vials of medicine, and even an iron-free tent in which to make his magnetic observations. Put it over there! Where? Put it over there! Here? Put it over there! What? Put it over there! He was a data fanatic, an observer of plants and animals in situ, and someone who saw the interconnectedness of nature. In 1817, Humboldt suggested the notion of isothermal lines, where he devised the means of comparing the climatic conditions of various countries across continents. Quote, Instead of confusing tables, one look at his isotherm map revealed a new world of patterns that hugged the earth in wavy belts. Humboldt showed that temperatures were not the same along the same latitude as had been previously assumed. He showed that altitude, land mass, proximity of oceans and winds also influenced heat distribution. He also discovered the decrease of intensity of Earth's magnetic field from the poles to the equator, and he anticipated the theory of continental movements and shifting tectonic plates. Shaking all By noticing that Africa and South America could have been joined, he conducted a census of the indigenous and European inhabitants in New Spain, publishing a schematicized drawing of various tribal groups with population distribution and grouped them by region and social characteristics. Everywhere Humboldt was concluding that man can only act upon nature and appropriate her forces to his use by comprehending her laws. Humboldt was the first to explain the fundamental function of the forest for the ecosystem and climate, the tree's ability to store water and to enrich the atmosphere with moisture, their protection of the soil, and their cooling effect. Humboldt later put it succinctly, the wooded region acts in a threefold manner in diminishing temperature, by cooling shade, by evaporation, and by radiation. In his 1829 trip to Russia, he warned the Russians about cutting trees... power steam engines and drain flooded mines because they would consume too many trees. As Humboldt described how humankind was changing the climate, he unwittingly became the father of the environmental movement. It was because Humboldt used his fortune to publish his findings that he became a famous scientist and influenced so many people. He came to be well-known with the reading public as well, with popular, beautifully illustrated works in multiple languages. Humboldt viewed nature holistically and tried to explain natural phenomenon without an appeal to religious dogma. He believed in the central importance of observation and as a consequence had amassed a vast array of the most sophisticated scientific instruments then available. Nothing quantifiable escaped measurement. All that information was analyzed and popularized by Humboldt, an adventurer who could observe, hypothesize, and analyze evidence with the best of them. Two great volumes stand out. The first is Ein Naturgemälde der Anden, also known as the Chimborazo Map. Naturgemälde basically means nature picture or map and was a fold-out at the back of the book. The map had written descriptions on either side of the cross-section of Chimborazo, 
These detail the information on temperature, altitude, humidity, atmospheric pressure, and the animal and plants with their scientific names found at each elevation. Plants from the same genus appear at different elevations. The depiction is on an east-west axis, going from the Pacific Coast lowlands to the Andean range of which Chimborazo was a part, as well as the eastern Amazonian basin. Humboldt pictured the three zones of coast, mountains, and Amazonia, based on his own observations. Humboldt first sketched the maps when he was in South America. Today, this would be a multimedia PowerPoint, but it's all on one fold-out map slash chart. The second, Cosmos, was Humboldt's multivolume effort in his later years to bring together all the research from his long career. His 1829 expedition to Russia supplied him with additional data comparative to his long American expeditions. Humboldt had long aimed to write a comprehensive work about geography and the natural sciences, and Cosmos brought together data with a creative and artistic voice. Humboldt wrote, Nature herself is sublimely eloquent. The stars, as they sparkle in the firmament, fill us with delight and ecstasy, and yet they all move in orbit marked out with mathematical precision. Humboldt was ahead of his time, and he was a hugely important scientist who influenced Charles Darwin, Henry David Thoreau, John Muir, George Perkins Marsh, and Ernst Haeckel, the drawer of art forms in nature. Darwin, for one, was a rabid fan. When Humboldt responded positively to Origin of the Species, Darwin finally had a chance to meet Humboldt himself. It turned out the great man was a chatterbox, and Darwin couldn't get on a word edgewise. Darwin noted that, quote, Humboldt was cheerful enough and paid him some tremendous compliments, but the old man just talked too much. So, okay, the old humanist scientist wasn't perfect. Maybe he liked the sound of his own voice. But Humboldt was a brilliant man who was curious, interested, supportive of his fellow scientists and artists, and had a work ethic that was boundless. Alexander von Humboldt lived an active and adventurous life and was addicted to experimenting, measuring, analyzing, and learning. Humboldt spent almost 90 years on his beloved planet, spread knowledge all around, and left us with new perspectives on the world. As he contemplated his end, he left us with these words. How glorious these sunbeams are. They seem, they seem to, call to call the earth, earth to the to heavens. The heavens. When I was a kid, my dark-haired and diminutive mom, Madeline, often reminded me and my friends of Betty Boop. Standing five foot three inches tall, raven-haired mom was spunky and lively, a Betty Boop-like character in her younger years. When friends visited in high school, they would often comment on how mom seemed like a grown-up Betty Boop. Or they'd say things like, Betty Boop is still around. She's your mom. We used to tease mom about this, and I used to buy her lots of Betty Boop kitsch, including a Betty Boop doll, which she had for years. At a certain point, mom told me to pass on the doll to my little granddaughter, Bijou, who just turned two. Bijou has fallen in love with the Betty Boop doll and carries it all over with her. And then she discovered Betty Boop's cartoon collection. Bijou is fascinated with those cartoons, begs to watch them, and at this point, she is in love with Betty Boop. I like Betty Boop cartoons. 
What a hot cornet can Like Betty Boop can do A saxophone can go What a saxophone can Like Betty Boop can do Betty Boop was a creation of Max and David Fleischer of Fleischer Studios, one of the great animation studios of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. The Fleischer brothers, like many of Hollywood's early moguls, were Eastern European Jews who brought their moxie to the early days of animation. The Fleischers and colleagues were responsible for a number of technological innovations like the rotoscope, a combined projector and easel for tracing images from live-action films. This device enabled Fleischer to produce some of the first realistic-looking cartoons. In addition, Fleischer Studios also invented the bouncing ball to follow cartoon songs' lyrics for the audience to sing along, and some of the greatest cartoon characters in animation history, like Coco the Clown and Popeye the Sailor. In World War II, they also brought comic book hero Superman to the silver screen. producing some of the most colorful and realistic-looking cartoons produced up to that point. Ain't you kind of glad and ain't you kind of gay When you hear me say I love you Or tell me, baby, or ain't you Boop-boop-be-doo But it was Betty Boop who was Fleischer Studios' big star of the Depression years having a run of 90 theatrically released cartoons in the 1930s, as well as being a star of comic strips and mass merchandising. Boop began originally as a sort of anthropomorphic French poodle, but soon developed into a flapper girl with more heart than brains. Another inspiration was likely a female starlet from the 1920s named Helen Kane, who had also used that line, boop boop a doop. Within a year, Betty made the transition from an incidental human canine to a completely human female character. By the release of Any Rags, Betty Boop was forever established as a ditzy flapper. Her floppy poodle ears became hoop earrings, and her black poodle nose became a girl's button-like nose. The original designer was an animator named Grim Natwick, to whom Dave Fleischer handed a photo ripped from a magazine. She was wearing spit curls, I remember. She had a kind of round face. So I started creating a little dog character. But as I got into it, I couldn't resist making a cute little chorus girl, a little burlesque. And so, Betty made her first appearance in a cartoon from 1930 called Dizzy Dishes. Step right this way to our cabaret, don't wait to be invited. Just check your room, you'll all find room, come in and get excited. Then shake your feet, sit down and eat, on beef or macaroni. Our food's well spiced, but when it's sliced, it's just a lot of baloney. Betty Boop was an animated version of a sexy jazz age flapper and is regarded as one of the first and best known sex symbols of the animated screen. Although a reminder of the more carefree days of jazz age flappers, she became a symbol of the Depression era. In a way, Betty combined flapper aspects, short skirts and garter belts, with Mae West Depression era curves. Her popularity was drawn largely from adult audiences, and the cartoons, while seemingly surreal, contained many sexual and psychological elements, 
particularly in the 1932 Minnie the Moocher, featuring Cab Calloway and his orchestra. I'm not afraid. Are you Bimbo? No. Folks, now here's a story about Minnie the Moocher. She was a red-hot hoochie-coocher. Minnie the Moocher defined Betty's character as a teenager of a modern era, at odds with the old world ways of her parents. In the cartoon, after a disagreement with her strict parents, Betty runs away from home, accompanied by her boyfriend Bimbo, only to get lost in a haunted cave. A ghostly walrus, rotoscope from live-action footage of Calloway, sings Calloway's famous Minnie the Moocher, accompanied by several other ghosts and skeletons. As Betty became more popular and sang more or boop boop a doops, she became the subject of litigation. In 1934, Fleischer Studios was sued by Helen Kane, who maintained she had developed the character and the musical phrase. The trial was all the rage and went on for weeks. Fleischer only turned the tide when his attorneys paraded out a series of women who had voiced Betty Boop for the cartoon thus supposedly proving no single individual owned Betty's personality. The defense also argued that gibberish singing, as in boop boop a doop, went back a long way, maybe even to Shakespeare's Hey Nani Nani from Much Ado About Nothing. This 1934 trial saw Betty become even more famous, described as combining in appearance the childish with the sophisticated, a large round baby face with big eyes and a nose like a button framed in a somewhat careful coiffure with a very small body of which perhaps the leading characteristic is the most self-confident little bust imaginable. And after the trial, Betty pretty much owned boop boop a doop Betty Boop was unique among female cartoon characters because she represented a sexual woman. Other female cartoon characters of the same period, such as Minnie Mouse, displayed their underwear or bloomers regularly, but in the style of childish or comical characters, not a fully defined woman's form. Betty Boop wore short dresses, high heels, a garter, and her breasts were highlighted and showed cleavage. In her cartoons, male characters frequently try to sneak peeks at her while she's changing or simply going about her business. In Betty Boop's Bamboo Isle, she does the hula, wearing nothing but a lei, strategically placed to cover her breasts, and a grass skirt. Betty was massively popular. But according to animation historian Reed Mittenbuehler, she was aimed at outsiders and immigrants. The Fleischer studio artists designed her for the kinds of neighborhoods they themselves had grown up in. Lower East Side tenements, where laundry dried on fire escapes, cross-pollinated by smells, drifting up from delis and smoke shops. Fleischer Studios' 1931 Christmas card featured Betty in bed with Santa Claus, winking at the viewer. The talker tunes The Bum Bandit and Dizzy Red Riding Hood, both from 1931, were given distinctly impure endings. Betty Boop's best appearances are considered to be in her first three years due to her jazz baby character and innocent sexuality, which was aimed at adults. 
However, the content of her films would soon be criticized by the National Legion of Decency. This was an organization fronted by many of the same people who had demanded alcohol prohibition and was led by many of the same nativist, mostly rural Protestant voters at war with modernity. A film industry group fronted by a man named Will Hayes put together the Hollywood Production Code of 1934 and imposed voluntary guidelines, really self-censorship rules, on the motion picture industry. They placed specific restrictions on the content films could reference with sexual innuendos. There could be no pictures showing sexual attraction in a suggestive or improper manner, only wholesome love. By 1934, The New Yorker was reporting that, quote, movies were about to observe a perpetual Lent. This moral backlash greatly affected the Betty Boop cartoons. Joseph Breen, the new head film censor, had numerous complaints about Ms. Boop. Breen ordered the removal of the suggestive introduction which had started the cartoons because Betty Boop's winks and shaking hips were deemed suggestive of immorality. No longer a carefree flapper after the date the code went into effect on July 1, 1934, Betty Boop became sort of Betty in a house dress, or Dowdy Betty, a career girl who wore a fuller dress or skirt. Additionally, as time progressed, the curls in her hair gradually decreased in number. She also eventually stopped wearing her gold bracelets and hoop earrings. Over the next several years, Betty's hemline got longer, her garters became less visible, and she began showing less cleavage. Gone would be scenes like the one in Chestnuts, where two candles reflected in the eyes of a man trying to seduce Betty go wiggly after she blows them out. From now on, she would play more secretaries and school teachers. After the Hayes Code, Betty's popularity plummeted. She was no longer an exciting sensation. Betty was just another rational adult. Animation historian James Gurney tells us, Nonetheless, she carried on for five more years, with her attire and innocent sexuality toned down. In spite of this, her delightful voice and sparkling personality remained the same. In this later part of her career, she stopped hanging out with animals and clowns. Her world was suddenly populated with human beings of the same species as her own. She also got a puppy called Pudgy, who often stole the show. Slowly... It was all downhill from there. Except in my household. We loved Betty Boop and our Boop-like mom. And Betty lives on. Just ask Bijou. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. I'm here with Caitlin Berrigan. Caitlin is an artist who is living in Berlin at this point. I have known Caitlin since she was a young whippersnapper, a sixth grader, actually, a very precocious sixth grader. And she joined the Mendocino Middle School Improv Club at that time, which I was coaching. Caitlin right away showed a lot of spunk and was very artistic. I welcome you, Caitlin, to Snap Sessions. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Doug. You seem to me 
from childhood, you seemed like you might be a young artist who was sort of developing in that way. When you were a kid, did you see yourself at all as an artist? Did you feel a little bit like, I want to make something creative? For sure. I was always engaged in artistic things. I mean, a lot of it had to do with the encouragement of my parents. My mother was a painter and pianist, and then other members of my family were also into writing and music. And uh, so being in the Little River Redwood Forest without access to cable television or <laughs> very much entertainment other than the radio, which there were, I don't know, maybe one, one or two stations or something like that. And also being quite far away from other friends, I had to entertain myself. That playtime happened with making my own radio shows, actually. That was one of my favorite things to do, was um, play multiple characters, interviewing each other like you are now. <laughs> so it's definitely, I mean, there are many different things that I did as a kid, but it, it was never really a question for me, that creative impulse. And also something I engaged a lot in with my friends, such as Emily White. We would improvise songs together, even though neither one of us could play an instrument. <laughs> and then I think I probably might have been, you know, actually there was one thing that I think it was, her first name was Jenny. Jenny and, Otter? Yeah, Jenny Otter. Yeah, um, for, Jenny Otter's a good friend of mine. She's now a retired teacher as well. I think it might have been in Jenny Otter's class when we got to go to the NASA JPL laboratory, which is pretty phenomenal that we got to go on that trip. And I was obsessed with physics since I was nine years old. I read this book. <laughs> it was called An Old Man and His Toy, which was kind of a, a pop science book for adults on Einstein's theories of relativity. I remember buying that from the gallery bookshop. The person at the counter asked if it was for me and I said yes. It was very like, you know, a bit skeptical, but it was one of my favorite topics. I really would have also loved to go into physics. However, my math skills from honestly from public school in California, when I arrived at later when I went to high school at a fancy, fancy pants place on the other side of the country, even though I was in the top of the grades in the public schools in California. I was behind, I think, two years in comparison to the students in the private school in math. And so I never got to, I didn't get to, to do the advanced physics classes or anything like that when I was in high school at that point. So I didn't really get to do the same level of science that would have allowed me to consider that as a possibility. We'll talk a little bit later in the interview about your interest in geology and how that comes out in, in some of your art, which is fascinating. By the time you were a high school kid, when I had you in the improv club, I had you in seventh grade math. Presumably, I got in the way also of some of your mathematical science development. No, I, I, <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I'm, I'm teasing myself. But, you know, you were really, really involved and really helpful in the, the middle school improv slash comedy club, and you wrote a lot. And you ended up at what was the Mendocino Community High School for a while before you went back east. And that was sort of an alternative school in, in the Mendocino area here. Then you managed to uh, become an exchange student in France. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved and then where you went. We were about 15 or 16 at the time. 
Yeah, I was 16. I went to the Mendocino Community High School for one year, which was such a beautiful and special place. I just wanted to see more of the world since I had not seen very much of it at all at that point. My mom took me on a trip to France when I was 13 years old. It was my first time out of the country. We went to the Loire Valley. We were the guests in Lydia Rand's house in the Loire Valley, which was totally spectacular. And for me, just radically shaped my imagination. I had never been outside of the country before. So I don't know if I would have necessarily chosen France if I had gone to another place. <laughs> but because it captured my imagination as the first place where I'd left the country, I definitely wanted to go back. So when I was 15, I went to this fancy pants private high school on a scholarship in Massachusetts. And that was, you know, also to be exposed to new people and different things and different places and different worlds, which was pretty awesome for me to, to meet all these incredible people from all over the world and just be in a bigger, I like big ponds. <laughs> I'm a very curious person, so I just love meeting different people. And so they were the ones that offered a couple of different programs. There was one in Spain and there was one in France at that time. So not a whole lot of options of places, although they had so many different languages that you could take at the school. But that were, those were the exchange programs through this particular place that you could do for a full year. It had been going on, I think, as a kind of post-war activity. It originally was called um, School Boys Abroad because it was just an, you know, as an all-boys school anyway. So it had been around since, I think, the 1940s or 1950s in the same building. And I stayed with a family who were completely welcoming and warm and so much fun. I learned, I, I really didn't speak French that well <laughs> at that point. I just had two rudimentary years of high school French. And so when I arrived, I had to draw upon my improv skills to communicate. They called me their little clown because I would communicate non-verbally in a very cartoonish way. And I would <laughs> definitely get my point across until I had words. <laughs> So yeah, it was definitely kind of my um, ability to communicate theatrically that enabled me to learn the language really fast. And so I was there for a full year in high school. And then I went back to the fancy pants place to graduate. Just as a, a sidetrack here, you've stayed conversative in French. You go to France a fair amount, even though you live in Germany now. Do you, Would you call yourself a Francophile? Well, I did end up going back and spending another year in Paris uh, when I was in the university. And that was also a really incredible experience where I went to a few different universities to take classes. One was Paris 8, which was kind of a radical college that was originally Vincennes, and it was founded by all of these post-1968 kind of philosophical radicals. And the actual university is no longer there, but the um, but it was kind of displaced from the center of Paris into um, the outskirts in Saint-Denis. And so this was, um, you know, I think Alain Badieu was uh, lecturing at the time, I believe that Deleuze taught there. So there were just these post-structural 
surrealist French thinkers who were um, kind of went through that place. And it had a lot of radical political activity and still does a very much an alternative kind of um, transdisciplinary mindset, which was something I was always after, <laughs> thanks to yeah. my hippie Mendocino education. And so I, I really enjoyed that place. I also went to the Sorbonne, but mostly as a anthropological observational experiment, because I couldn't, I like, I couldn't stand their teaching style at all. It was just so patriarchal. This, I just remember this French professor lecturing to a hall full of students in this way that might be considered a form of verbal abuse uh-huh. in his very fancy cowboy boots and, um, you know, just like oozing a sort of masculinist sexual energy, talking about art history, trying to be really intimidating. And I was just like, this is so bizarre. And like, I can deal with this a few times, but I don't know if I want to be here forever. Mm-hmm. So I learned during that time when I was in Paris as well, all of my friends were from the Maghreb or from the Arab world. Also, the family that I stayed with in Brittany was a working class family. And so in Paris, you know, I had friends who were who were Parisian, but who were, you know, their families were Algerian Jewish or Syrian or um, that's where I met my first friends from Lebanon and, and ended up having lifelong connections with all these people. I still go visit my family in Brittany and I still maintain friendships with these people from my university time in Paris. But I came to understand only later through reflection that the kind of um, true white bourgeoisie of France was never something that I was interacting with or interfacing with, except for maybe this art history lecturer. (laughs) So my whole social life and everything that I encountered was not the the kind of uh, ruling class of the French bourgeoisie or even aristocracy that I am not a fan of. And it's a deeply racist, deeply sexist place. Not that you can say that the United States is not, but I don't, and for those reasons, I, I can't really say that I'm always such a Francophile uh, because of the way that those um, structures are, are replicated throughout all the time. Although I do love French literature. I mean, what I still love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I feel that way about Europe generally. There is a lot of strictures and so on that we we've taken on that would be negative i would see that as so but at the same time a great thing about say france or britain is this is similar is there's so much outside influence that has become part of french culture or british culture too that it makes it super interesting and you can get a lot out of that so i think you have that's that's basically a way of being i guess french culture diversity in a way that that's kind of can be inspiring too. But I'll switch back a little bit to your childhood just to ask you about this because it's such an interesting essay. You sent me Atmospheres of the Undead, Living with Viruses, Loneliness, and Neoliberalism about getting hepatitis C at the age of four months from a blood transfusion during surgery. I had no idea about this. And I wondered how you dealt with this as a kid because I was one of your teachers and I didn't know about this. Tell us a little bit about dealing with that as a child and how you overcame that. Yeah, thanks for asking and thanks for reading the essay. It's a great essay. 
Thank you. Well, you would you didn't miss anything because at that time um, it was unknown. It was undiagnosed. Um, when I was in school, it wasn't until I was in my senior year of high school after I had been in France and came back that I started. Yeah, I was showing some unusual symptoms, which were concerning pretty extreme hypoglycemia, where um, a few different times I lost consciousness from low blood sugar and didn't know how long I'd been unconscious. And so they started doing some blood work. And actually, it was um, a physician in Fort Bragg who had noticed at some point earlier in my childhood that I had elevated liver enzymes. And so Knowing my medical history that I had had a blood transfusion in 1981, he decided to just go ahead and see if I tested positive for hepatitis C. As I had been notified by the hospital in the 90s that there was a possibility I had contracted um, HIV from the blood transfusion. And there were, you know, a number of class action suits related to blood transfusions with HIV, but this never materialized with hepatitis C in the United States, although there were a number of class action suits in other parts of the world, including Canada, Japan, and France. But nothing has of the sort has ever been done for hepatitis C, and I wasn't even notified to be tested for it. So it didn't really surface until I was 17. Yeah, then it was really quite a lot to deal with in my senior year of high school to try to reckon with uh, what this disease was, and which was potentially deadly, or that was the path is that it's a path towards slow death. Um, And especially for somebody young like myself, who You know, for a lot of the boomers who got it often from tattoos without by sharing needles or frequently this was done uh, among war veterans or through the sharing of needles or IV drug use because it's only passed through the blood. It's not passed in other body fluids. So they might be diagnosed in their 50s or 60s or something like that. And then the prognosis of 20 to 30 years later was not such a big deal. But for somebody who's 17, the prognosis of, you know, liver failure after 20 years is pretty grim. So it was mostly then that I started to, you know, seek all of the different possibilities for treatment that I described in the essay, which have to do with with interferon and then the um, suppression of medical innovation due to the fact that the primary scientist who just won the Nobel Prize for discovering the HCV virus were the ones who patented any discovery around the virus and how to culture it and um, ultimately guarded the knowledge through intellectual property to do any research on coming up with a cure. And they were the ones who came up with the cure, which was then priced at this completely exorbitant price uh, in 2013 of $90,000 to $120,000. So, and it hasn't really come down, which can be manufactured at $100 per dose. So it's kind of the story, which I wanted to link up um, at this moment to how stories about with coronavirus and the vaccine that we're all anticipating, and we have put hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of public funds into their research, 
are still being held hostage with, through patents and intellectual property and will not be released to um, produce uh, by generic manufacturers so that everybody in the world can be vaccinated. It's an interesting essay. For those who are, are listening to this uh, interview, I recommend uh, looking it up because it's about the politicization of medicine and um, what goes on with that. And once again, I salute you for writing it. It's very, it's very interesting. So it's worth, it's worth a read. Switching back in terms of moving on to your career, you went to college, I think at Hampshire College in Mass, and you got uh, an MA in visual arts. At this point, you seemed, uh, you seem like you're heading in a direction of being an artist. Was there like conscious decision then to want to do art? And what kind of art did you initially see yourself doing? I went to Hampshire College in Massachusetts for my BA, and I had applied to different universities that were all liberal arts universities. They were not art schools because I wanted to have the possibility to always draw from other disciplines and gain different knowledges while pursuing uh, an artistic path. So I primarily chose places that had strong photography and video programs within a liberal arts college. And Hampshire has an excellent photo video program and is itself was founded as a kind of US sister school to um, Saint-Denis <laughs> in the post-1968 sort of questioning everything educational revolution was all about interdisciplinarity and breaking down classical forms of knowledge. And <clears throat> I didn't know at the time, but it was well suited for me. Um, UMass Amherst, uh, which is one of the five colleges is kind of a center of Marxism. And um, Hampshire College has an excellent program of social science. And so pretty much everything that I did um, also had an element or um, an influence from the social sciences, including art history, which completely blew my mind and changed me in so many ways that I'm so glad about. Right. <laughs> Just deconstructed uh, this idea of inherent talent and genius and everything else and gave me the social context, um, you know, a kind of economic context as well to read through um, what art making is about. So yeah, that was really interesting place. I actually ended up not following through so much with photography. I did study it for a little while, but then it was prior to when digital photography was really well developed and the um, chemical exposure to photography and film was too extreme for what I had just discovered that I had liver disease. So I couldn't really be in dark rooms any longer without risking a lot of extra toxicity. So I had to choose different media to engage with and uh, went into sculpture and did a lot of dance. The five colleges are also an incredible place for studying dance. And I did literature, went back to Paris for one year, had to go on medical leave for one year. <laughs> so, or for six months rather. So yeah, it was, uh, it was really an incredible place to study. I, I met so many lifelong friends and mentors. What did you end up doing for your project for your MA then? And that was at MIT, right? 
What was your project? So my master's um, was at at MIT in the art, culture, and technology program. Um, I wanted to kind of see the inside formation of how science forms our knowledge about ourselves. So it's really I wanted to look at science, looking at uh, how it presents ideas of nature, of the interiors of our bodies, and um, and then how we mutually inform and shape science and are shaped by its ideas and how those are informed by power. So I wanted to go inside the centers of scientific power. <laughs> and so that's why I wanted to go to MIT as an artist was to not critique science from the outside, but really try to get a sense of how it operates on the ground. And so these observations of how knowledge and power are both formed were really quite illuminating in that, you know, you get, you can't make monolithic statements any longer about um, those spaces and circulation of ideas and power, but you do see how it functions. I mean, it was uh, incredibly disturbing and fascinating to see how many different programs were funded by DARPA, by the military, and then turned into also private corporate entities that were then bought by larger entities, such as the such as the robotic dog uh, that was first funded by DARPA, then uh, turned into a small startup company in Boston, and then it was bought by Alphabet, which is this research, AI research arm of Google. So this kind of supply chain of um, knowledge formation, especially around tech, was uh, really interesting for me to engage with. And at that time, I was interested, I was working a lot around the hepatitis C virus and about viruses in particular, and how we can interface with things that are um, otherwise imaginary and that we can't really see or understand, and what are the different protocols that we create in the world to interface with things that we believe we are you know, not porous to. I just also want to point out DARPA. It's basically a research arm of the Pentagon that looks into things. I think they might have come up with the internet, uh, just for example, way back when. So DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, was uh, one of the primary funders of the different research projects at MIT. And in that way, because it is a military funded innovations that come from or are derived from that, uh, that funding are then subsequently patented. MIT is maybe, I think, the largest patent producing institution in the world. You know, it's effectively a socialist, a, a way of socialized funded um, scientific innovation with capitalist commodities that come out the other end. So it is a kind of, yeah, it's a capitalist extractive system of invention. And for, so, for example, one of them, one of the people that I almost took an apartment from uh, developed the Roomba from a bomb detecting IED device, which was a DARPA funded project. And so he made a vacuum cleaner out of it. And um, and then <laughs> that was a patented, you know, product that came from it. I mean, a kind of a poor example, not as exciting of an example as like a robotic dog, but a more familiar one. 
So the work that I did um, at MIT was uh, mostly, not entirely, but um, mostly I was interested in these uh, kind of interfaces with the microbial world and with viruses and the interiors of our bodies. So one of the things that I did that was, it was a commission from the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York was a small work of art that um, I gave out as um, as a gift to, to whoever attended the event. It was a miniature chocolate uh, version of my liver um, that I had derived from a 3D MRI tomography of my internal organs. So in 2006, I did also, I created chocolates from the viral protein capsid of the hepatitis C virus. I remember and, some of this now. This is great. I do yeah. remember the chocolate stuff. And I just have to remind you that 3D printers were extremely new. Like they hadn't been around for very long at all. <laughs> so, And they were just, they had just developed the capacity to read the protein of, or the proteins of the viral capsule. Like this was not a self-evident science. It was just emerging at the time. So it was only in these kind of very high-tech specialized enclaves that you could gain access to a 3D printer, but now you can just go into like, I don't know, Best Buy and buy one, which is amazing, but not then. Like, <laughs> So I was um, getting proteins from scientists and converting them from these weird scientific formats into 3D models and then from 3D models into these uh, 3D printed weird forms and sculpting and casting them into edible chocolates that I would then offer to people in public. A lot of these were activated objects in public that I was working with so that in that moment when people would eat my my liver or eat the chocolate is kind of like this strange version of cannibalism where you're kind of faced with the abject and yet it's just like, you know, um, otherwise delicious substance. But the kind of like visceral cognitive dissonance that you might have in that moment was something that I really loved playing with. And another way that I played with this was also kind of by disrupting the boundaries of hygiene, which we see with the virus now, <laughs> like yeah. all the time, yeah. just like, I knew that people couldn't deal with making their own dynamic decisions about the existence of microbes in the atmosphere. And so I would displace a substance in one um, in a different context and people would freak out. So this was kind of something that I liked to play with in public contexts. I think it's a fascinating thing. And now that you mentioned, I do remember the chocolates and I do remember seeing pictures and so on. I didn't get to eat the chocolates. So you owe me, but okay. um, beyond that, <laughs> so sooner or later, uh, yeah. I'll catch you on that. So I think that, like me, I, I've tried to go back and forth between uh, North America and Europe and like the connections, uh, intellectual connections. And I've done it mostly through improv theater. You've done all kinds of stuff going back and forth. You mentioned the Whitney Museum. You were at MIT. But you've also been teaching in Berlin for years. And you've been associated with the Humboldt Foundation, the Akademie Schloss Solitude, NYU Tisch. You're a visiting professor at Bard College, Berlin. Uh, you've also been associated with the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna. Do you think that this particular connection just developed organically or just because you also speak German, French, and English? 
So that's got to be helpful that way. Is this sort of like just an organic evolution or is this just, have you sought this out? I think both for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've always had a desire to see places with my own eyes and to try to have um, an un, you know, whatever, it's not possible that uh, to completely filter yourself and your received notions of a place out of it. But I really do think that being open to the unknown to other people and to be changed by them is one of the greatest pleasures in life. I mean, it's an enormous privilege that I uh, was able to to make happen through my work because I didn't have financial means to do it, say, on vacation or for pleasure. I would facilitate through my work other people paying for me to go everywhere. <laughs> That's great. Good. So, that was how I did it. And that was, you know, there are many places that I would really love to see and be changed by. But, you know, they don't have the same means or I don't have the same connections to them. Uh, it's not as easy to have mobility there. So, for example, like Germany has excellent cultural funding. And their programs in cultural diplomacy by paying um, to import intellectual people from all over the world is uh, quite extraordinary and it's very effective. You know, they had uh, the program that I uh, came on in uh, 2013, which was not the first time that I um, lived in Germany, uh, but it, they, it was kind of a brick program where we were Angela Merkel's uh, chancellor fellows, and we did actually get to meet Angela Merkel in person. It was a group of um, fellows who were from all kinds of different disciplines from Russia, China, and the US. And then later, the, the following year, they added India and Brazil. So you can see like, you know, the kind of economic, uh, military, geopolitical configuration that they were doing soft politics with, but I benefited from it enormously and in that way also had exposure to really incredible minds that I as an artist would not for example have become friends with somebody who did risk management for the Chinese government but it was yeah. incredible so I did seek it out and, and primarily through professional means because that was my only way to see the world financially anyway and also to develop longer term have more time in, in different places. And I um, would, you know, love to continue doing that. I did almost um, take a job in Beirut. Well, yeah. Well, let's <laughs> talk about your video. Very different, yeah. very different path. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of the videos that you have out and that I think in the last years have been some of your big work. I, I have a couple here that I've, I've listed that I watch. Imaginary Explosions, there's two. Vacant Address and Becoming Mineral, uh, they're all really interesting. Uh, let's start with Vacant Address since that ends up in Beirut. You describe it or it, it is described as an exploration of speculative real estate. It has a series of beautiful videos and a powerful narrative about empty buildings. And in both Berlin, 
Berlin und Beirut. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what you were doing with vacant address. And I also, I highly recommend for the people who are listening to this podcast to take a look. It's very interesting. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Vacant address is also part of a longer term project called Unfinished State, which I think I cursed myself by titling it Unfinished State because five years later, the book is still not published. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it's all about these um, this pattern of unfinished buildings that are in throughout the whole landscape of Lebanon. And I was interested in how Berlin and Beirut were both divided cities during a similar time period, and they were reunited um, during a similar time period as well. And in this moment of 90s capitalism and nation building, how the two sort of manifest in, in, in these architectonic forms and how the two kind of created different symbols and spaces in the landscape to invite reinvestment in, the, in these spaces that had been torn apart by civil unrest and civil war. They are um, both very different, but I think they also kind of bring together for me ideologies of how real estate kind of um, becomes a material form of capitalism and nation building and where it leaves a lot to be desired. And so in that in that emptiness of what remains to be desired of the public vibrancy that never realized itself in um, these empty, unfinished buildings in Lebanon, and then in Berlin, in all of these highly um, overpriced, terrible condos that just lost so much money in many different parts of the city. You know, where is the public and where can the public imagination flourish? And so in a, in a sense, is a little bit like of a, a romantic kind of calling to still try to envision something of an alternative world for these different spaces. But in the sense that it's like drawing a sort of fictional, imaginative, evocative space from actual buildings and places and sites that exist that are real. I think that vacant address is visually stunning. We, we can't really do it justice orally. Um, you have to take a look. And I think you do a lot of really good work uh, with video in the sense that you present a building and what it looks like from different angles. And then the back and forth between Berlin, which of course was rebuilt twice then in the last 75 years after 1945 as two cities. And then after 1990, trying to unify it in a way that some ways is complete and some ways isn't. But then when you go to Beirut, torn by civil war and a variety of different places there too, that is it, the contrast and the comparison are very interesting. So I think it's, it's definitely worth looking at. But that brings me to imaginary explosions. For those of us who remember 2011, the Icelandic volcano. Actually, it was 2010. 2010, um, okay. Yeah, in 2010, Eyjafjallajökull erupted in Iceland and halted air travel uh, throughout Europe and the whole continent. This was, of course, at the time I was scared to death because I had workshops scheduled and I was hoping the volcano 
which I'll, I'll let Caitlin pronounce again a little bit later, would stop erupting. And it did in time for me to come. So I selfishly was happy. Imaginary Explosions is fascinating. It has some narrative. It has a bit about the volcano. It also has some sort of geometric expressions, uh, visual expressions. Tell us a little bit about Imaginary Explosions. Imaginary Explosions is, uh, yeah, I, I thought of it as a as an episodic speculative fiction through video, where I wanted to depict a network of trans feminist scientists who are operating in communication with active volcanoes hmm. and with the geological agencies of the mineral earth to carry out its own desires. And so in this kind of reverse heroic narrative where um, instead of controlling nature, the idea is that there's a collective of humans who are working for nature in the service of nature and also with technology. And the technology is this mediator that the humans have to learn how to interpret and, um, and understand. And sometimes they misunderstand the messages that are coming from different other than human elements. So this kind of notion of media and technology as extensions of the sensory world of humans is uh, something that I'm, of course, very interested in and have been for a long time. I mean, it goes back to all of my engagements with, you know, looking at the nano geometric forms of viral capsids inside of the body and um, and looking at uh, the organs and how you can image the organs and materialize them all of these different non photographic imaging technologies that enable us to perceive and have a different sensory experience of the earth are also part of the planetary sensing as well. But they're just tools and tools, of course, can be used in deleterious ways. And they can also be used in the service of the planet itself. So it's just a question of um, how we decide to use and employ these tools. But the story, of course, with these um, technologies, especially ones that have to do with planetary governance and uh, monitoring, is that most of them are developed by the military industrial complex. So the kind of um, fictional network, which again is this mix of fact and fiction, because all the people who are the non-actors who play the characters in the film are artists and scientists themselves who are actually doing this kind of work in the real world. And they play these fictionalized versions of themselves interacting with the media and technology of planetary sensing and, um, and volcanology. And in that way, I kind of want to conjure this imaginary of a different way, a more ethical um, way, a more collective way of engaging with the earth, which um, we've been so harmful to each other and to the planet for for a deep time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. This also harkens back to you when we began the interview, you talking about your interest as a young person in physics and so forth. This is sort of the geological side of Caitlin Berrigan. You do this and then you go into imaginary explosions too, which is also about a volcano. And this is the one in Chile, and this is called a Chaiten. How do you say that one? Chaiten. Chaiten. 
This is also about a volcano down there. It also connects us sort of like with geology, biology, anthropology, because it's about ancient people hunting sea lions and a variety of other things. And it's, it talks about a cave where some ancient people live. It asks a very important question. How do you communicate with a volcano? Did you come to any conclusions, Caitlin? Well, there are many different uh, modes of communicating with volcanoes, for sure. And some of them are mediated through technology, as I mentioned before. And others are, I think, more about a kind of embodied knowledge and also one that is engaged with oral storytelling and the thing about the cave in Chaiten, uh, which is in Patagonia, is that um, there are descendants of the people who were likely to have passed through that cave. Um, the, and they live um, primarily indigenous um, people who are mixed with uh, successive waves of, of primarily Spanish uh, colonizers, the Chilote. So they're kind of uh, mixed histories there, but there's not a direct descendant link that they're, that the pe researchers there are aware of to the people who came in over probably thousands of years to occupy those caves. And this was the first archaeological dig that was intended to preserve the history of this cave and also to honor the indigenous artifacts that have not received very much protection by the Chilean state. And so, you know, one of the things that is broken in, there may be pain, there are these incredible carvings of vulvas on the walls in uh, in the cave and there are paintings of vulvas and paintings of suns and uh, hands and um, just incredible images there. But because of colonization, because of genocide, the links to the people and their stories have been ruptured. So there's, you know, that line of communication is, is broken, which is also the case in many parts of uh, these embodied, of embodied knowledges and ways of communicating and being with the landscape um, in California, for example. So those kinds of ways of connection and communication also happen, I think, through that lively matter and not just through technology and artifacts. So that was kind of part of what I was trying to get through in the film. I would recommend for um, people listening to Snap Sessions, this podcast and Caitlin's interview, take a look on Vimeo, these videos, Imaginary Explosions, Imaginary Explosions 2, and the uh, vacant address are all available on Vimeo to take a look at, and you can have more time to take a peek. So I'd recommend that. Moving along, I wanted to also ask you, uh, in some of the writing that I read that you were talking about speculative world-building cosmology. And I don't say this in an airy-fairy way, but it's because Kaylin's interested in science fiction and sort of like ways to make science fiction and art and science and sort of um, speculative cosmology or whatever work together. Talk a little bit about what you might mean by that. I, I love the idea of alternative worlds and um, other perspectives. I mean, in, in many ways, you are very familiar with um, ideas of speculative fiction, world building and cosmology, because you do it all the time. It's, it's an improvisation. And actually, I should mention that 
most of the films that uh, I'm shooting are improvisational because I am going on site to these different places where I don't have a crew. I do not have the funds <laughs> to set, you know, um, have any, lots of things done in advance to have like site visits and like have a scenario that I'm going to then um, lay out and perform and do and execute. I try to be nimble with the camera and observe and take it in and then play with whatever is available in that moment and to kind of build a loose fictional world and then kind of bring it together in a different way. So it's kind of, it is very much based upon, you know, an improv setting where you might have a few set of rules and then you improvise with them. And you make up a scenario and you make up a world and then you um, respond in a relational way to somebody else who's playing with you, um, what they have to contribute to the world. You know, this is something that um, I find really fascinating and important to bring in, for example, in pedagogy as well, because uh, we do want to um, create spaces where we can imagine the world otherwise, because the world can be a pretty daunting and oppressive place. And if we can't kind of model in uh, literature and art, um, how different scenarios might unfold in different in in um, in world spaces, uh, then we can imagine different political scenarios, how might we encounter them if we wanted to actualize them. You know, one of my great inspirations for thinking about uh, world building in fiction as uh, a political practice and as a kind of cosmology was um, the novel The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin, which uh, was given to me by my friend uh, when we were both part of Occupy. (laughs) And Occupy, of course, was a really um, horrifying and exhilarating and jubilant and depressing kind of um, world building um, improvisation that a lot of people did collectively together and these sort of practices. It it was a scenario uh, building situation. And so what Ursula Le Guin, when she was writing The Dispossessed uh, or how she wrote The Dispossessed was modeling different political pop worlds, world possibilities, and put them into friction with each other. So it's not about imagining a utopia or a clean slate, which is something that I referred to in the vacant address video as a form of fascism. You don't want a clean slate. You always have to deal with the mess that's um, present. And to pretend that you can start again and everything will be clean and happy, is um, that's Elon Musk. That's, you know, um, colonizing Mars. It's just the story of colonization over and over again. But when you look at these things really in encounters of difference and friction of different cosmologies that might come together is, I think, where the richness of uh, imagining other ways of being can come alive. That's uh, super interesting. The business about you knowing you have, you always have to deal with some of the existing mess. So you don't have the freedom to completely create something anew. That makes complete sense because you do have to deal with that and you have to try to lift people together and deal with the planet too. Um, 
we have a mess on the planet now and we have to fix that. And at the same time, we have to strive for something better. So I see that as working together and for, for a better future. What are you teaching now in Berlin? Tell us a little bit about some of the stuff that you, you're teaching and maybe have been teaching or would like to teach. So I am actually this semester not teaching, and I'm very grateful for that because teaching is all happening on Zoom. Um, but I was teaching at Bard College in Berlin um, a class on mixed reality and world building in mixed realities. And it was an art class. It was an introductory class that uh, was designed to introduce these, these concepts of imaginary world building to students with different skill sets. It was called Living Double Lives. I, what I was doing was introducing them to theories of world building, including those that are practiced in speculative scenario building by the military, for example, and how the military uses speculative world building, um, alongside thinkers such as Angela Davis, Nikita Dawan, and Gayatri Spivak, who are thinking about world building from the perspective of Black intersectional politics and um, radical restructuring from a global South perspective of the political scenario and how a, a notion of a cosmological world building can be practiced and performed by everyone. And as a political practice, also thinking around virtuality because I was teaching them augmented reality and virtual reality and how to begin to build a world in uh, virtual reality and how to interact with the physical world through augmented reality. So a lot of the different ways around thinking of about what the world consists of is around these different political questions of how worlds are structured and, and what we take for granted and actually naming them. What, How can we name what exists in our world? And also around perception and cognitive theories of mind, how the mind interacts with the world, because there's a lot of questions around philosophy and phenomenology that exist there, because we uh, build an imaginary world um, behind our heads, knowing that it exists there. We have a spatial um, virtual bedroom that, that lives behind us <laughs> when we're not looking into it. So the world, the spatial world that we hold in our mind is a lot bigger than what we're seeing with our eyeballs. And it's a virtual world because it doesn't really exist in this way until we um, have it come into our senses in a concrete manner. So there's a lot around um, theories of mind with virtuality. And then at the same time, they were creatively thinking up their own worlds. And I've taught it now twice. I taught it at NYU. And then I taught it this past semester at Bard in Berlin. It was uh, pretty crazy because in the middle of the semester, when we were just getting into the really nitty gritty of augmented reality, they had built these physical dioramas that we were going to then collectively together in the computer lab, build an augmented reality app. Then when everything suddenly went on lockdown, you know, they had no access to their dioramas anymore. Um, it was extreme. Some of them left the country and some of them really couldn't get access to the computer computer room or their computers were too slow. So then we had to imagine a whole new class <laughs> of like, what, what could this mean? And, you know, they were remarkable and um, so resilient. And I was so impressed by all of the different ways that they created worlds in these very limited confines in this extraordinarily stressful time. It was really amazing. 
do you see yourself your next projects maybe something that you yourself want to do once this um i was going to say silly lockdown but i guess it's probably a little i don't want to invite the wrath of the gods once this is all done do you see what's your next project you'd like to get on to yeah, it's a little hard to uh, project myself into the future right now. There were so many things that I was supposed to do in the spring, in the summer, in the fall, and they have all been canceled and rescheduled for June, <laughs> which is not going to happen. Um, so, and then of course, I think everybody's having a bit of an existential question of, around like, do we carry on as we were before? You know, what do we do? Um, I mean, what what purpose? what purpose do I have? Um, all of those kinds of things are happening in, in this moment. For example, I was uh, supposed to go shoot a film in Naples in the Campi Flegri, uh, which is the flaming fields, which is basically this insane crater of an active volcano. You know, it's enormous, and you, but you wouldn't even know it because you can't really even see the volcano because it's so big. But basically, there's an enormous portion of Naples that is built inside of a, the crater of an active volcano. That is where um, there is, I was going to film with a um, seismologist there and there's a whole history of Vesuvius. Of course, you can see yeah. Vesuvius, but Vesuvius is tiny compared to this other volcano. And then that I couldn't go. And so I had filmed this very funny, ridiculous pizza hut. It's kind of like a pizza oven sized miniature volcano in Dessau out about an hour and a half outside of Berlin. And it was um, part of a pleasure park built in the 18th century by a romantic kind of um, amateur scientist and maybe um, bourgeois revolutions, um, sympathetic aristocrat Franz Leopold III. And he built this artificial volcano that's an, a replica of Vesuvius and the villa of Sir William Hamilton, the um, ambassador to Naples from England at that time. And so I filmed the second eruption of this artificial volcano since the 18th century, a couple of years ago. It was the only artificial volcano from that era, there were several different kind of pleasure pyrotechnics that were uh, performed throughout Germany, France, and Italy. It was the only one to survive its own eruption. So I managed to film this a couple of years ago and thought that it would just be like a footnote to the main story of Vesuvius. But this artificial volcano has become the main character. And that's the episode that I'm working on right now. And it's just like getting deeper and weirder into kind of the origins of geology and the origins of extractivist mining. And, you know, this moment when, you know, this was kind of the proto, this was the beginnings some like to say that that 1610 should be the origin of the Anthropocene because it was when there was a carbon spike in the atmosphere that entered into the geological record after the mass genocide in the Americas of indigenous people. And the forests regrew at this rate that they entered into the carbon record. So it's kind of trying to look at, you know, what is the deep time origin, you know, this era of the Anthropocene is, that is colonization and also this kind of drive towards um, mining. So 
it's it's very fun and playful, um, but it's also dark. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds fascinating. I mean, I, I could see the artificial volcano being a piece in and of itself, you know, and talking about that. You've got more volcanoes in your future. That's what it seems I like. Yes, I do yeah. have more volcanoes in my future. Um, which ones will be how mobility can return? That'll be the question. That is a great place to come to a slow, gradual halt here. You have been absolutely fascinating. And, you know, it's great. Uh, when I first met you, I thought, what a great kid. I always wondered what you do. And as I've, I've known you over the years, occasionally we've had the good fortune of, or I've had the good fortune of bumping into you. Uh, you visited Mendocino maybe 10 years ago. I think I was teaching and you came and we had lunch together. And um, I've stayed in touch here and there and tried to find out what you were up to. And it's been great to try to search you out here recently and find out if I had a chance to interview you. So I thank you a million for this. Snap Sessions thanks you very much. So yeah, one thing I just wanted to add though, Doug, is to thank you for you know all of the things that you've contributed to um, what I do now. I mentioned before that improv helped me to become more responsive when I'm filming and to incorporate that technique into um, shooting film. But it's also in the drama skills and the improv skills that I um, that I learned with you also carried a lot into my teaching, my ability to, you know, jockey questions all the time to speak in front of people and not be cowering and, <laughs> you know, the play, the, the to play with people and, um, and to kind of create an environment where we are building a scenario together, that kind of dialogic expression and, and ability to respond to each other in the moment. That's all, that's all coming from improv that I learned that from you. So thank you for that. Well, thank you, Caitlin. It's been great. I really appreciate it. And um, thanks a ton, Caitlin Berrigan. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Doug. Thanks to our artist of the show, artist, writer, teacher, Caitlin Berrigan. Our production team includes Techmeister Marshall Brown, Jack of All Trades Ken Kraus, writer interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast at patreon.com forward slash snap sessions. We depend on the support of listeners like you to cover our monthly podcast and transcription service costs. Please join us as a Snap Session supporter. We have support levels from Little Snapper to Snappus Maximus. Thanks to all of our generous supporters.